Happy New Year, podcast listeners. This is Jared Pitney, and I'm sitting here with Bill Jeffrey and Robert Piercy. Happy, Happy New, New Year, Year everybody. <laughs> hey, before we get into our first episode of 2022, I want to make a quick announcement. When I decided to start the Paragold Podcast, our current producer, Bill Jeffrey, was the one who did all the behind-the-scenes work to help make this dream become a reality. And since the launch of the podcast, which is now a year old, Bill, that's crazy to think crazy. about. Um, Bill has been the guy who's recorded every episode. He's edited all the content, ran our social media page, and I think you would all would agree has done an incredible job. But um, after today's episode, Bill's going to be rolling off as our producer of the podcast in order to take a new job. And your boy, Robert Piercy, uh, will be stepping into that role. And so two things I want to say is, uh, one, um, Robert, uh, super glad that you have chosen to step in to this role. Um, glad to know that you have the same desire that we had, which is to you know, have a podcast that celebrates the incredible people living here in our city. And so officially welcome. Hey, man. Thanks a lot. Uh, number one, thank you. And then like number two, I love I love Paragold. I mean, I was born and raised here, raising my family here. So real excited to meet all these cool people uh, that are in this city and, and help how I can. Right on, man. And I just want to say publicly, Bill, thank you so much for all of your hard work. Um, this podcast could not have been launched without you, and therefore, I am personally forever grateful, and I know our, our listeners are as well, um, for all that you've done to get this off the ground. Hey, it was an honor, and I appreciate the invite to join this ride, and yeah, it's been it's been fun. Awesome. But Robert's going to do an awesome job. Really to be job. determined. To be determined. Bill, you've done great. Hey, thank you. Sorry Let's for pay what attention happens. to the ratings. Let's look at the ratings uh, yeah. once Bill left and then where we are this time next year. That's a good idea. That's a great idea. All right. Well, for now, uh, we're going to move on to the last episode with Bill. And now on to today's episode with retired Master Sergeant Ted Mabry. Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pickney, and today I'm so excited because I'm joined by Chief Master Sergeant Ted Mabry. Ted, thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So I have noticed just from reading your book and looking at some of the pictures in there, I've also found other pictures of you on the internet. Um, you have a lot of badges and medals. Um, I'm curious, which ones are you most proud of? Well, uh, all of them. Uh, all of them represent something. And so the two highest ones is the Bronze Star, and then above that is the Airman's Medal. And uh, the Airman's Medal was for heroism that I had no idea until they was pinning it on me what it was for. So it, it probably means more. Wow. And how did you get those? I was in the Philippines, and... Uh, the, with the Airman's Medal and uh, a kid uh, there's a, a large canal that runs through the base I lived on base in a, a house about two blocks from the bridge that crossed that canal and uh, came a flood up in the mountains and it all came down through the base this uh, I heard a, I'd stepped on the back, out on the back patio I was getting ready to go to Okinawa to pick up some teams to go into Vietnam. Oh, wow. And I had a clean uniform on and looking sharp as I could to get on the airplane. And uh, I was, a, at the time, I was a young, a young master sergeant, E-7, and I uh, stepped on the back porch and I heard screaming and I didn't know where it was coming from. Looked up and there was three kids about six houses down from me and the, the 
the canal had a, a fence around it that came across, came through my backyard. And then the, the bridge was just, just outside that fence, on the outside fence of the yard. And uh, I seen this kid bob up in, in the water, and it was really rolling, and some of the concrete base of the, the, the creek had washed out. It was so, it was so bad. And about 100 yards past the bridge, it went underground and went under the, uh, for about a half mile. And I heard this kid screaming. He was bobbing up and down, coming out of the water. And so I went across the fence, got on the bridge, and hung off the side of it. And when he come by, I just happened to be in the right place. Wow. And I got his hand as he come up, and I slung him out, jerked him up on top. Well, in the meantime, people had stopped and seen all that. Well, when I got him out, I asked him uh, what he had done. Where, where was the boys that was with him? And he said, oh, they got out on down there. But he was only nine-year-old, I found out later. And he said, uh, they got out, and I couldn't get out. And uh, I said, well, I got to go. I got to catch an airplane. So I ran to the house and changed clothes again. I was muddy. <laughs> uh, when I come back, uh, people had uh, stopped at the bridge because they, I was laying on the, in the bridge, just laying in it and on it and reached out and happened to, he happened to ha come out in the right place. Wow. And uh, I got him and, and uh, put him out. I asked him if he wanted me to take him home. He said, no, I can get home. So he run back down to his house, and I went ahead and changed clothes. And my wife asked me what had happened, and I said, "I don't know. I don't know. I pulled this kid out of this creek." Anyway, uh, when I got back, I was called into the the, the uh, deputy commander for 13th Air Force, and he uh, read the citation. Uh, it had uh, where I had pulled this kid out, and mm. he gave me the Airman's Medal for heroism. Mm. And I didn't. Uh, wasn't, uh, the slogan for EOD or the the uh, motto is initial success or total failure. And I said that's a good example of initial success or total failure. I happened to be in the right place. Mm. That's the only reason, only reason I got him out. What do you but, think compelled you to jump in? I have no idea. I have no idea. I didn't. Uh, as a kid, you know, and he's yeah. in trouble, and. Uh, so I just, I don't know how I got over the fence. Wow. Uh, but I got him out. You saw a need and, yeah. and you took an initiative sure. for the benefit of sure. another, which is the definition of leadership in a lot of ways. It's taking, yeah. uh, taking initiative for the benefit of another, right? Not right. sitting back and waiting for somebody else to take care of yeah, it. You see no, a need and you go into it. Had he, had he got through past me, he would have went underground. And uh, Wow. Uh, when I got back from... Uh, Okinawa from Vietnam. I went to Denang. I went on to to Okinawa, and then I went into Denang and worked the Mar for the Marines for a while. As a, I was a master sergeant. I had a four-man team, and I, I had a, a bomb dump blow up at Denang, and I worked in that bomb dump. Well, I want to talk more about that in just a minute. I'm curious, your bronze medal, the bronze star, whatever. Where did that come from? That came from Laos, and. Uh, and Thailand. My home base was Udorn, Thailand. I had a bomb squad of eight people. And uh, I was responsible for the northern part of Laos, 
which was the closest part to Red China and up through there. And uh, my responsibility was with the CIA and uh, General Vang Pao. Uh, he was the good general, the, the uh, Royal Laotian Army general, and uh, he would or send messages back to our contact, who was a fellow by the name of Kolishaw, a major in the army, and, and they would give me the, where they wanted me to be the next day. But my, my supervisor, or if I had a supervisor, uh, he had a code name, and uh, his code name was Mule. Hmm. He was out of Missouri, naturally. But I didn't know he was my boss. I didn't. Uh, I had went out a couple of times on missions, and he had been around. But I didn't. I had met him, but I didn't know he was my boss. So I, I went the whole year uh, that I was there. I was there, responsible for the the explosive uh, humanitarian and uh, other missions in Laos at that that whole year, and. Uh, my boss in over in Thailand, well, I had responsibility for my team, had the responsibility for the runway and everything. We had about uh, three fighter squadrons on that base, and they would fly sometimes 150 missions a day. Goodness, and how many people were you responsible for at that point? Well, totally, uh, my total people was only eight. Okay. And uh, we had to cover both areas. And uh, we spent a lot of times in a helicopter and... and uh, a lot of times running, whichever was necessary, mm -hmm. sometimes both. Mm -hmm. But uh, that's that's what my operation was, and we would we had no identification, nothing at all. We wore civilian clothes. Why is that? They didn't want anybody. They said there was nobody in Laos, and there was nobody in Laos. Okay. And we, I couldn't talk about where I was from. Didn't. My wife didn't even know where I was from. What's that like to? It's not good. Yeah, uh, you're in a you're in a position where up in Laos we had a safe house, and on the, on in the area that my safe house was in for my team, we'd, I'd take one or two men at a time with me when I went, or sometimes I'd say I had two assistant team chiefs, and uh, that were e both E six. Ranking man as a, as a senior E8 senior master sergeant at that time, and uh, one of my team chiefs got killed, and uh, mm -hmm. the other one was wounded, and then I had two people wounded, and uh, all I ever got skin up a little bit, but I didn't ever get where I would receive a Purple Heart. Do you ever get over losing a team member? Is that to this day? No, no, no you don't. Uh, it stays with you all the time. Uh, till this day, I've not received a Purple Heart or noticed that this one team member got a Purple Heart because of where we were at. I think it more than anything else. Mm -hmm. Now, the team chief that come in immediately following me, a good friend of mine, was a, he, was a, he was already a chief master sergeant at Hogren. I'd known him for years, and he had an individual killed the same week that I was leaving. And, uh, but they handled his, that whole situation a little differently.
but mine, it was early enough that they didn't want anybody knowing where we were. Wow. And it's a I, very secretive uh, mission. Yeah, you couldn't. It was all top secret, and uh, you couldn't uh, you couldn't let anybody know where you were. And uh, when I when I went up there, well, I'd, if I wrote my wife a letter or something back then, we didn't we didn't have the cell phones all mm-hmm. ready going, and mm-hmm. uh, I would tell her I'd be going for a, a week, give me a week or so, and I'll be back. But uh, I'd go wherever I needed to go, and uh, Air America would fly me. What I could, I'd pick up a phone and, or the radio and say, I need you, so-and-so, to take me to Lima, Lima locations, where ours were all Lima sites. And I was round eye or EOD-1, depending on whether I was in uniform back at the base as EOD-1 or... Uh, uh, Round uh, in Laos, mm-hmm. but that's how it worked. So, I, I'm going to share some of the things that I've read in your book. Um, you were you're an Arkansas boy, so yes. you you were mm-hmm. born uh, in the St. Francis River Swamp, is what your book says between the Lester, yeah, and Dixie, and um, you enlisted in the U.S. Air Force in 1955, retired in 1976 as a mm-hmm. Chief Master Sergeant. Mm-hmm. For the Major Air Command, mm-hmm. um, what is the Major Air Command? Major Air Command is a command like it, that handles all the transportation, all the bombers is a separate command, all the tactical fighters are a separate command, or if you're in training, the training command, and the logistics command, and that's that's a major command. Pacific Command is in Hawaii. That takes care of everything in the Pacific. Uh, but uh, my major air command that I worked for as a, as a senior guy was the one in, just before I got out, I had a three-year control tour, and I took care of the bomb squads in the military airlift command, but I was the only guy in at the military airlift command headquarters that had mm-hmm. any background at all in explosives, which made it a trick. Uh, what, what drew you to the bomb squad? Some of the people that I had worked with, uh, I uh, I only knew of one guy that was in the bomb squad, mm-hmm. and uh, he had uh, he was in at England Air Force Base in Louisiana, and I was a young one strapper uh, working on jet catapults, uh, seat ejection systems as a two strapper, and. Uh, he used to come to the shop. Wait, so you worked, you worked on seat injections? Yes. I think I read in your book, uh, wasn't there, like, if you saved someone's life, a pilot, they owed you some beer or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you, they were like, well, what if it doesn't work? And you're like, then you don't owe me any beer. <laughs> That's, yeah. And that, that came back to me. Uh, we, had a, we flew F-84 officer. They did fighter squadrons and, and that's Buck and Bill Patilio was the twin majors that was in charge of that outfit and they put the outfit together to take it to Italy for Aviano Air Force Base and was opening it up and uh, we went over there and, and these twin majors were the people the two people that formed the Thunderbirds originally out of out in Arizona 
and uh, <laughs> uh, they later, later moved to Nellis Air Force Base in Nevada. But uh, they uh, they were really good people to work for and and work with. I mean, they'll have to get in it. You know, you turn around it, and they'd be helping you do something. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're loading a seat in an airplane or putting a rocket on it, one of them stick his head around, and they'd say, what, you need any help up there or whatever. And, uh, but it's just a good outfit to be with. And uh, when I come back and they told me they were going to bust a squadron up, and uh, I had made Buck Sergeant overseas in, uh, in Avano, and, and they had also started forming the 1st Air Commando outfit in Florida. These two majors, well, one of them was taking over a squadron, the other's exec officer. Well, in Louisiana, my dad had got blown up here in Arkansas, mm-hmm. uh, blowing stumps yeah. out of a river down here. Yeah, I read about that. And uh, Should have died, almost died. Yeah, yeah. He, he stayed in the hospital six months or so, and they yeah. told me two or three times he was gone. But one of those majors come to the shop and told me that Dad had got hurt, and uh, they didn't know how bad it was, but the Red Cross said to bring you home or send you home. He said, I won't, don't go nowhere. I'm going to be right back, and I'll tell you where to meet me. I'm going to go get an airplane. We're going to go to Arkansas. How about that? And uh, that's how come me and Italy with them. Uh, I canceled a, a trip to probably OCS. I took some tests and passed them. But when they said they was going and they would like for me to go with them, I said, I'll go. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to go. But... Uh, when they done that, I, I, they brought me home. They not only brought me home in an airplane, he couldn't find our fighter. We had one fighter squadron in Florida training pilots, well, F-84F. He boarded a weather plane and flew me to Jonesboro. And after Dad got a little, I stayed about a week, and I, they said, you might as well leave. He's not going to get any better. And my rest of my folks was here mm. with my mother. So I called him back and told him I'd be back, and he told me to wait meet me at Jonesboro so-and-so date, and he come got me. Is that right? me back down. Wow. So I, they must have thought highly of you. Uh, yeah, they did. They, everybody I ever worked with, when I first went in, was that those kind of folks. And uh, I said, no, I'll, I'll, when he said, we'd like for you to go, but we know you got other things planned, I said, no, I'm going with you. Yeah. And uh, so I went with them. So eventually you you felt a tug towards the bomb squad. Um, that seems like a pretty high-risk job, a job that not a lot of people want to take because they want to keep their fingers and toes. Um, what? It's all volunteer. From the day you volunteer for it, you can walk away any time. Okay. And uh, after my dad had got hurt, I'd helped him a little bit. And uh, I like playing with explosive. And... Uh, you came by that honestly, I guess. Yeah, right? I guess I come by it honestly. And and I also found something else out that when you're there, it don't make any difference what rank you are. Nobody looks over your shoulder. Really? Nobody. You're, you're trained at the same school. All of you are trained at the same school. So regardless of rank, when you come out of there, we had a lot, of, not a lot, once in a while an officer would go through EOD school. He would be made a squadron commander, or he would be made a, a munitions 
safety officer or whatever, but he was not qualified to do daily emergency-type operations. They just didn't get to that level. And when I went on a job, even when I was a buck sergeant and went on a job at Little Rock, uh, we had a squadron commander for a while that had been to EOD school, but he would not go. We would qualify him once a month. We'd let him go out to range and make a, you know, blow something up. If that's what made him happen, yeah. made him qualified for his hazardous duty. So are y'all testing bombs? Is that what y'all are doing? Or are you we trying to do a lot of, We'd do that. We would test, test fuses. Uh, I had some special missions where I would go in behind a few bombs that was dropped, and they, they had a, a, a mission called Black Spot, and it would sometimes it would be a bomb that was going someplace that had a special fuse in it, and they'd send us behind me or somebody after the thing was in, or just like in most recent wars, they have a, a concrete buster. Uh, called a bunker buster. You've probably heard those. Those are bombs that do something different. What they do is penetrate 20 foot of concrete and then blow up. So it gets, and so they had some black spot operations that we done with small anti-personnel stuff. What's the biggest bomb that you've ever worked with personally? Personally, was uh, be the type of bomb I, I've worked with. Two thousand pound high high explosive bombs, uh, proximity bombs. Uh, Which would cover uh, how much territory? If they oh God! It, <laughs> it really uh, hundred and fifty yards is not far enough. Huh? I mean, you couldn't. It, it would. Uh, there was a couple of instances that we was on when we had to call somebody in, and, and, and those guys that were on missions to North Vietnam, if I was up north someplace and we got the bind, well, we'd call in Puff the Magic Dragon, which is a gunship, or we'd call in a, a run off of F-4s at, uh, in one place in, in there. You'll see where the, we would have been a guy by the name of Peyton were in a... Uh, on top of this mountain, and uh, as uh, things got so tight, we didn't know what was happening, or we was not very well organized up there, just me and him. And, what do you mean you weren't well organized? Well, we got the we got up there, and we couldn't get off. Off the mountain? Off, we couldn't get off the mountain because How come? it was right on top of a peak, and uh, we were sitting there kind of as dead ducks if we ever got caught but what happened was we heard something so steve he jumps up and he says i'll go down the mountain and i'll radio you back and tell you what the noise is we're hearing well we got down there there was three tanks and, they and were, where was this at did you say this was in laos northern, in laos, okay. northern laos so after we got over there and uh, he uh went down he come back in a few minutes he just sweating <laughs> First time he had been warm all day. <laughs> he uh, said this. Oh, I thought it was a dozer or something because every once in a while they'd have a dozer somewhere working for USAID. You know, uh, hands across America bit. They'd be up there on a humanitarian action doing things. Things. And uh, Steve come back and he uh, said, "There's three tanks down there." 
and uh, they're coming around the edge of this hill here, this mountain we're on, and what should we do? I said, we got to do something. we got to get out of here if we can. We and what did y'all come in on? We come in on a helicopter. Okay. Air America. So your oh. helicopter's still there? No. Or no, it's no, gone? No, they go. They just throw us out and leave, and no matter where they were at. Uh, and there's how many of y'all on top of the mountain? Me and, me and Steve. Just y'all two? Yeah. Is that how many uh, they dropped off? Yeah, that's, that's, that, was, that was a team. We had there was no security because the, <laughs> the path at Laotians was out, you know, we were bothered a couple of times, but uh, we just hung out there really to dry, and uh, they couldn't get to us. And they decided that, uh, I told Steve, I said, let's just go back on the other side as far as we can get and call Barrel Road. Now, Barrel Road was the car- the area that these guys, most of these guys flew over going into North Vietnam. Okay. They'd come across us, and I asked for help from Barrel Road. And this pilot come on, he said, I got four 1,000-pounders. I'm going north. And... Uh, told him, I'll give him our coordinates, and uh, he said, where are you at? And I told him, he said, well, just hang on, they're laser-guided. And I said, well, yes. And, and so well, you do things like that when there's no way out. And uh, So he made a way out? He made a way out, yeah. He'd he done a good job. What is that like, right, to right, be trapped and then to see? Right, right down, we didn't know it until after things had settled and we got the mud out of our eyes and but we you hear, you, that had to be a sweet sound, right? You hear that that plane that, come roaring, yeah. yeah. Like that's and we sat and watched him, watched one come by, and I said, "Oh, we got to get in the hole." And we got in the hole, a bomb crater that was left there for somebody we had found up there. Wow! And we got in that hole, and and when when he hit the tanks, well, the calf covered us up. Goodness! But we both, we had we were skin up, but other than that, we didn't. We just got. Buried. And that's not the first time you were dropped behind enemy lines. Oh no, oh, no, we stayed behind enemy lines all the time. Why? Well, what's the what's the strategy? Well, there? you had they had Air America there with that Hands America, Hands Across America, which is a humanitarian outfit. Their job was to drop food. We kick as kids over nine nine year old it thought rice came from airplane or helicopters huh. and uh, they were trying to the cia had total control of that war the whole war they was running the whole thing the cia the cia and i i have no idea they, they were trying to prevent the path at laotians from taking over yeah what was the name of that operation well the end they called us on was a pepper grinder okay and uh, that was the code name of our operation, just the EOD mm-hmm. operation. And uh, they would, uh, but those guys come in, you'd call them and they'd come, and then you call for Puff the Magic Dragon, it'd come out of another place. That was an old C-47 that had Gatlin guns mounted in it. That you'd, they, you'd call them in? Sure. We'd call them in. and it, it, Lay down some fire? Lay down some fire, and they could put a, uh, one round in a, in a football field, one round at least in every square foot of football field in about 60 seconds. Jeez. And they just, you know, it rained on my bullets. Wow. And then the, the big C-130s had a 130, a 150, 
155 in the back of them. One in, mounted in the back of the tail of that thing had dropped the door to fire it. But it also had 20 millimeters in the side of it. So, but, but you know, I, you might have said this and I just might have missed it. I'm trying to understand what exactly is your job when you're behind enemy lines? Like when they're when they're putting you in there, what are you what are you doing? You're trying to clean up explosives okay. to keep kids from getting killed. That was our mission. Was it was considered a humanitarian mission? Gotcha. But by the same token, as you as you, it wasn't broadcast or anything at the time. But when you were in there wow. cleaning up for them, we were also fixing it where somebody else couldn't get it. If they got it, they'd get all of it. Because you didn't want them to have anything left I, over they could I, use against IEDs. you. We get rid of them. With, they, they call them I, IEDs now. We call them booby traps. Wow. And uh, we would build those and leave them wherever. You were dropped behind enemy lines in Vietnam as well, right? And That's pretty right. much in the middle of the jungle? Yeah. Yep. Same type of work? Same type of work. Same. What was that like, being in the middle of the jungle of Vietnam? Same thing. It was worse in Laos than it was in Vietnam. It was worse in Laos? Yeah. Yeah. In what way? Well, for one thing, 70% of the flights out of, of the fighter missions, out of at least 70%, I, that's just my figure, based on the, I went to all the bases in Vietnam and in, in, in Thailand, and there was more double to triple the missions flew out of Thailand than there were Vietnam combat missions hmm. but the war was in Vietnam not in Thailand mm -hmm. but sometimes there was an effort in Thailand with uh, the uh, path at Laotians or the Viet Cong they got into our base on one occasion while I was there and once they get there, you're, you got your hands full. Wow. So you probably had many, I'm guessing, moments, or at least a handful of moments where you're like, I'm not sure I'm getting out of this. Or did you always feel pretty confident of like... No. I was always confident. Were you really? I, I, I never thought... I was always... I didn't... I didn't panic. And an EOD guy don't ever panic if he does. He's dead. Well, do you think that's... How much of that do you think is um, built into a soldier, and how much of it you're just born it's with? It's confidence. It's how well you're trained. And there's nobody, nobody trained any better than Air Force personnel. Really? If you'll go to Florida and look at the memorial, the EOD memorial, it's got a, a tower for every branch of the service. And it's got the Marines, it's full. The tower is just names all over it. You get over the Air Force side, and it's, it's a difference in how they're trained once they leave there, I think. Mm -hmm. Now, don't get me wrong, the, the sharpest and the toughest guys are Marines, mm -hmm. but being tough will get you killed. In what way? Well, you have a tendency to believe you're bulletproof. Okay. And you're not. Mm -hmm. I watched too many go down and, and not come up. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. 
you just you just can't. I would train my guys when I got new guys. They had the same school that I went through, and if they made it through there, then they were EOD people, but they didn't have the experience. As I got my experience, I would put them in charge of the team, and I might be on their team. I don't care if he's a one-striper. He wouldn't be a one-striper. He'd be a two, three, or four-striper. Sometimes you'd get people that were higher than that that had happened to retrain because there was a shortage, and they thought they wanted to do it. Most of them quit after they got their 20. I quit because I had enough time. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but I, uh, I just, but I would train these guys, and I'd put them in charge, and I'd leave them alone unless I seen them start making a mistake. If they started making a mistake that, what I would think would be a mistake, I'd stop them, mm-hmm. and I'd say rethink this. Mm-hmm. But I'd back up and let them rethink it. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't bother me a bit in the world. I'd put the lowest ranking man I had, and the, and the people that that usually worked with me, my assistant, everybody, they didn't understand that but they always liked it mm-hmm. so you can you can be a leader and, and to be a leader you got to let them lead to be a leader you've got to let others lead yes you got to trust them you got to trust them empower them give them give them let them build their own confidence mm-hmm. have confidence in them and, and, and let them do it mm-hmm. and every team I ever had worked great I have. I don't have an EOD guy anywhere that ever worked for me that didn't like it. Hmm. Because you let them lead. I let them lead. You trusted them. I, well, I trained them. And some of them I went back to visit. That those that are not dead, most of them are dead now. I'm, I'm one of the old ones. Uh, but uh, there's quite a few of them that just, when they got their time in, they'd go get to a uh, DuPont or somebody like that mm-hmm. and got a permanent job and work another 20 years. I came to Arkansas because I didn't know what I was going to do, but I was through with this. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit slower pace here. Well, you've been all over, you know, I mean, I was looking, I was reading your book. You've, um, you've been to every state in yeah. the United States. Yeah. And, you know, there was one part in your book where you said, um, I might be in uh, Laos. Mm-hmm. Uh, one week, Thailand the next, Vietnam the next week, and Taiwan after that. Yes. So you're like, you'd be all over Southwest Asia. Yes, Just, I was everywhere. I was everywhere. You traveled a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah, all the time, all the time. I had two bags, and my wife kept one of them. She was with me in Itazuki, Japan, for six months. We moved to Tokyo for a year. From Tokyo, we moved to our 13th headquarters in the Philippines, my and Teddy, Diane, and yes. my daughter was yeah. with me. Uh, in the, Itazuki, we went because it was a, and I had a commission offered to me before I left Omaha. If I would finish my college at, at University of Nebraska, they'd make me a second lieutenant. I didn't want to be. I was already a master sergeant. And I liked what I was doing. And I told the general, his name was Felices, as a matter of fact, He's probably had never got that how well he could chew, but he did because I didn't take it. He had got me a slot at the University of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. I said, sir, I can't take it because I'm going to Itazuki with my folk, with my wife and daughter. And if I take that commission, it'll take me six months. He said, well, I'll see that you get it as a second lieutenant. I said, yeah, but I can't take them. 
Mm-hmm. So I didn't take it. What did um? What I, I'm curious, what it's like for you to live here after being all over the world. How has that changed your perspective? I mean, when you've seen it as much as you have all over the world, how, what is Paragould like to you? What is this area like to you now? Quiet, quiet. And uh, sometimes I go out in my garage and I just sit there by myself. You know, that, and uh, I, I, uh, I lost my first wife, Teddy's mother, uh, after 50 years. And I finally met this lady, and um, I started running around again, and I went to look at a lot of those places in the United States that I had been and I'd never seen. Uh, you, you go like I was going, and you see it, but you don't really see what it's like. And uh, the first year we were married, we were well, the first trip out, when, we were, when me and this lady got married, uh, I'd known her for, I don't know, four or five years, I guess, and, and we'd get married after we went together for about two or three. And we got married, and uh, the first trip out, we went through 21 states just so I could see what they looked like. Mm. And I had a brother that had disappeared, and he hadn't, he'd got killed in the Washington State, and uh, we went on out there and went to a reunion in Idaho and then went out there to see what had happened to him. And uh, he was killed in a car wreck, and he was in the Bataan Death March. And uh, he had escaped and survived. I was 13 before I ever seen him. Mm. And he had come back here, stayed a little while, went out went out to, out to uh, Glacier National Park, and that's where he lived. Mm. He got killed in a car wreck. Yeah, you said you turned 85 this past week, is that right? Yes. 85. So you've, there's been a lot of people that you've known who've died at this yeah. point in your life. I, I'm curious, I'm 38, and so, you know, I've still got, statistically speaking, the majority of my life ahead of me. The majority of life is behind you now. You've lost a lot. You've gained a lot. I gained a lot. You've gained a lot, but you've lost a lot. I, I'm curious, how do you... What instruction would you give to someone like me or those who are listening who maybe are middle age or still have a lot of life? How do you deal with loss? Because it's a natural part of life. You can't, whether you're in a war or it's civilian, gonna it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's, it's, uh, number one, I have no regrets. If I go tomorrow, I've, I've done seen it. Hmm. No, I, I don't. And it's not for me that I worry about it or think about it. It's... I don't want the people behind me to run around this. And I know part of it's going to happen. That that's the result of losing somebody. But I just went to a visitation for a fella that I know real. I drink coffee with him every day. Mm-hmm. The coffee shop bunch that I are all dying. Mm-hmm. I'm the only male that's left in my class from Dixie. Wow, and uh, I just—it's it, just something you—you got to face it. I mean, it's—it's it's worse if you don't face it. Mm. But uh, mm. I don't—I uh, don't have any any regrets. Mm. Uh, there's some decisions that I made along the way that may not be what 
most people think of, but I, that, that don't bother me either. What bothers me more than anything else is I don't want somebody telling me what it's like uh, and what I should do. Hmm. I don't give advice. Hmm. I'll give you my opinion, mm-hmm. and you can do with that like you well please. But just because you do something and it don't work out for you don't mean it won't work out for me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. just just face it at, uh, and, and go on because it's going to happen. Yeah. And uh, but I, don't, I don't worry about it. I've, I've never been afraid to die. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and God ain't going to give me anything or ain't gonna, uh, the devil ain't going to give me anything that God can't handle to yeah. start with. Yeah. And I've always felt that. And, uh, Not being afraid to die allows you to be able to, to live life. You live it uh, better. Yeah. You, you, I've always mm-hmm. been relaxed about whatever I've done. Uh, the most you can't of, be afraid to die if you work on a bomb squad, right? <laughs> no. And uh, uh, the most important thing in the world is other people's feelings. But don't uh, don't let your, you know, don't let your sympathy for something think that's a weakness. Mm-hmm. You don't do that. Yeah. Have you ever seen Band of Brothers or heard of Band of Brothers? The two, the the miniseries about uh, the war, World War Two. Some of it. There was a scene in there where there's a soldier that wouldn't get out of a foxhole, and his commanding officer came up to him and said, "You know why you're here?" And uh, the guy said, "Well, I'm afraid." He goes, "No, we're all afraid." He said, "But here's the problem: you haven't accepted that you're already dead." Yeah. And he said, as soon as you begin to realize I'm already dead, now you, then you can function as a soldier. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's kind of what you're saying of yeah. just, all right, death's coming somewhere. I'm not going to sit here and try to avoid it. It's going to come at some point, so I'm just going to. I'm not going to do anything that I think is real stupid. <laughs> but, but I've done some things yeah. that were kind of stupid. But, yeah. you know, you, you survive it. And you say, well, I'm not going to do that again. I'll do that another <laughs> way. Uh, so you worked with the CIA um, a little bit or worked alongside them, correct? Correct. Um, how did that come about? The EOD group out of Hawaii, which was Pacific Air Force, had a fellow there by the name of Sinclair, Chief Sinclair. I had been to some schools with the chief when I was younger, or quite a bit younger than him. Uh, but I watched him and uh, kind of seen what how he handled things. I tried to be a little smoother than than Sinclair was. He was he used verbs that you could not use, <laughs> and he would use them on anybody that wanted to listen or that whether they wanted to listen or not. But uh, he always got the job done. And he, the, the mission, a mission like we done, the most important thing was the mission. And to me, every time that I would pick two of those guys to go on a trip or send them somewhere where I knew, you know, it was really bad, when I'd do that, I would tell him, I don't care what you got to do. I want you back here, and I want you alive. I don't want to go get a body. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe that. I, and, and I know that was not the way that 
the generals and, and the politicians, uh, they, they thought war was like they said it was. Hmm. The, most of the politicians don't have any idea what the hell it's all about. And uh, they just, uh, there's no, you shouldn't take advice from them because they don't know. Hmm. Hmm. When you were with, uh, working alongside CIA, was that whenever Kennedy was president? Was it around that same time? And when the Cold War was firing up? When, and- uh, when the Cold War was firing up, I was sent to Bermuda, and uh, I didn't know what I was there for. And I was the only EOD man on the island. And uh, I got there, and I reported into the squadron, at headquarters squadron, 1604th, I believe was the number of it. I went in, and the first sergeant said, what are you doing here? And I said, I don't, I don't have any idea. I said, I was sent here because I was dual qualified as an EOD guy and a disaster preparedness man that sent me back to school for some additional schooling. And I knew I was supposed to put them little numbers on the side of the building to tell how much radiation that building would take before it penetrated. So <laughs> that was one of my jobs. Wow. It was also to train the base to give them classes on disaster preparedness. And they call that broken arrows. Hmm. Uh, when you have a nuclear accident, that's a broken arrow. The movie's true as far as that term goes. Hmm. And uh, they had places on Kinley Air Force Base, uh, which was a civilian airfield, run both ends run in the ocean. And uh, I went, the, the wing commander was a full colonel, and he said, Sergeant, I don't know what you're doing here. I was a staff sergeant. And uh, I, I said, well, I don't either, except when I left Denver, they told me, that here's the orders. And he said, well, you got a top secret clearance. What's that for? I said, well, you ought to know. I, evidently, it pertains to this base. And he said, well, the, we have them come through here on cargo planes going overseas. I said, well, I guess that's what I'm here for. And I don't know. He said, well, what do you need? I said, I need to set up an EOD file and, um, so I can train myself since there's nobody here. And he said, well, there's a Navy UDT team on the other end of the island. He said, you might want to, does that have anything to do with EOD? And I said, well, some UDT people are EOD trained, and evidently there's nobody down there. So he sent me down there, and it was the Navy. Navy had a UDT team there, and his the man that ran that was Chief Hershey. So we worked out a deal, and I'd go down there for training, and then I'd come back so I'd, two days a week. I'd go to the Navy, and they trained me to dive and all that stuff. Hmm. And then about, I'd been there about a month and a half, two months, well, here come guys in civilian clothes from Washington. And uh, I didn't know what they was there for, but uh, the general said, or the colonel said, we're going to move your desk in here after they come. Had been there for a few days. He said, we're going to move your desk in here. So they briefed me, these guys did. Hmm. Well, they were from with the Secret Service, and Kennedy was coming in. And... And then they had the four slots on the base for nuclear weapon planes hauling nuclear weapons could land going to Europe. And they decided that what I was going to do was a special mission 
for the Secret Service. Hmm. But I didn't ever know what it was until after I left Bermuda. And I ran what they called the B-20 project. They come in, they'd come in, check on train me. I didn't answer nobody. I'd just I'd send this thing out every month. I put, oh, I was over there four years, and I put uh, four Fourth uh, of July celebrations on for the base and for the town both of Ken, Kenley. <laughs> but some people come in later to to with me. But I bet you could put on a really good Fourth of July show. I could put it. I put on again. <laughs> the first one. The first one. They they decided to back off a little bit. <laughs> uh, but, uh, we don't need uh, as many explosives. You know, what I was doing, I'd send the air sample off to Washington or Pentagon every week, and I'd change the bottles in this machine and all this stuff, and I thought, what in the world? And finally, when I left there, the Bay of Pigs thing was over, yeah. and they had, in 63, uh, uh, I had come back to the States on leave, and they recalled me. Now, what in the world is going on? Mm. Yeah, but a unit that I ran for the Navy and, and well, everybody in the Air Force, uh, that thing was going on with the the, the nuclear weapons coming into Cuba yes. from Russia. Yes. And I was sampling air, and nuclear weapons, no matter where they're at, puts off tritium gas. Really? Yes. You were sampling the air to figure out how many explosives they were yes wow and i had no were idea. you getting some crazy readings or was well no i got i i didn't know what the readings were i just i would collect all this and then just all send, it in. send it in and they'd come back and they'd say good job good job good job and i hadn't done nothing you know i just you know i maintained the machine but they i built the machine and everything they set the part for it and because i had the top secret clearance wow that is crazy and uh, when I got back, to, I got transferred. I thought I'll go to Vietnam from here because I had not been. And this was 1965. I come March of 65, and I came back to the states. Instead of coming to the states, I went uh, went to Abilene, Texas. I didn't go overseas. I went to Abilene, Texas, and was assigned to a nuclear weapons outfit at Abilene. And then. Shortly after there, after they come in out of Omaha and done an inspection, and they liked what they seen, and I was the, I had made tax sergeant out of Bermuda, and received a Air Force Commendation Medal for the job I'd done with this unit, and I had fired a couple of weather rockets for them, uh-huh. and called NASA, and uh, notified them that we had fired these weather, or uh-huh. I'd fired these five-inch rockets and a little knoll out there in a place called Soldier's Point. But I got that, that and I seen that B-20 project was listed, and I thought that was what that was, was checking for tritium gas. Wow. And I, I didn't know that. I just knew what I was doing. Somebody liked it. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously they liked you and they trusted you. Last question I think I want to ask around this military, then I've got some rapid-fire questions I want to send your way. Um Looking back at your career in military, is there anything that you've taken away from from your time in military that you can apply, or that you still even apply to civilian life sure. today? Uh, leadership, uh, ability to 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 get along. I mean, the discipline 
uh, I like that. I, and and all the guys you'll find, all the guys in EOD like that mm-hmm. uh, because you know what you're going to do even before you have to think about it. Yes. You, you know what the next step is. You're prepared. Uh, you're prepared for it. And, and the main part is it may not be the procedure you use. You, you may not know the procedure by heart, but you got a book, and it covers everything. It is, it is one class when I went through that school there was no such thing as a, a robot. I was him. Hmm. And you would look at something, if if it was something, that's a pipe bomb or something, you knew what to do with it. Mm-hmm. You didn't you didn't hesitate. And Wasn't very many times you were cut off, caught off guard. Not often. When I was what? When there, I, wasn't, there wasn't very many times, it sounds like, where you were caught off guard. No, yeah. I never was. Never yeah. was. That I'd, when I'd get to something, I was like, well, what, what's this joker doing trying to build something <laughs> like this? You know, I can beat this. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, but uh, my first IED, as I call them now, or booby trap, I found or got called for was at Little Rock. Really? Yeah, I got stationed at Little Rock uh-huh. right out of EOD school. I was a number two man on a two-man squad. And I got sent down there one time. The Navy, of the Army, had the responsibility for taking care of Daisy Bates and all the the black racist problems that they were having in Little Rock, Norval Falbus, and with that group, they were raising cane. I got a call one night, and I went by myself, and uh, I found a flashlight down there near her house. Really? And uh, I looked at it, and I said, had an Air Force vehicle, I throwed it back at the truck, took it back out to our shop, put it in the shop, and uh, it's a big, these big flashlights like the cops used to carry. Yeah. And uh, went in the next morning, my boss came in, he was a staff sergeant, I was a three-striper under him, and he said, what, what is it? And I said, it looks like a flashlight, but I ain't turned it on. And he said, why not? And I said, well, we'll take that thing apart before I turn it on. And I took the front off of it and slipped all that stuff out of it. And sure enough, it had a, a little cap and a, one battery. If you'd turned it on, it blew it up. Jeez. And, uh, How did you get a lead on that? How did you know? The well, I had done one in school. It was something I remember from school. There's, when, I got, when I went to EOD school, it was in Indian Head, Maryland. And uh, Navy run, Marine operated, <laughs> Navy, Navy run. I was Air Force and they was trying to kill me. And uh, was that, if, what the Navy didn't do to me, the Marines did. But I had a lot of fun with them and got some really good friends mm-hmm. in, uh, in both branches. And, uh, but we took that apart. And, but the, fortunately, what happened there, the Army had the responsibility, but they didn't respond to that call. So they called the Air Force out at Jacksonville. And uh, my boss said, you want to take it? And I said, yeah. Hmm. And I took it. And uh, But when it was all over, they said, you know, keep this quiet. <laughs> yeah, sure. And then, uh, of course, I had a number of those that you, they didn't want out. I was say, you had to be able to keep a secret. Yeah, you had to, A lot. Yeah, a lot of secrets but uh, I, I just never had any problem with 
anything. And I got an award there. I got, uh, they had a B-47 blow up over Little Rock. And me and that, that guy that my boss then, we cleaned that mess up. And we had a, a what? A B-47. That was a big bomber that they had at Little Rock when I was there. Huh. It blew up about 15,000 feet right over downtown Little Rock. I'd never heard of that. And there's nobody. Just sort of malfunction? They never did say. It, it just blew out of the sky. And they had one guy that survived. He hung and he was hung in the, uh, on the uh, deaf school where that school for the deaf is. Mm-hmm. He was hanging. His, and his name was Smoke, Lieutenant Smoke. And he was, he, I don't guess he ever lived that down. But he, uh, he was, my boss found him hanging in a tree. And they got him, he got him down, but I was in another part of town where an engine and part of the front had fell, come down through a house, and the house had burnt. And uh, that was my first bed. Uh, there's a lieutenant colonel was on the airplane, and he uh, done a he face down right on the sidewalk, or and uh, he's still within his uniform, but you couldn't tell it. Mm-hmm. And then the house that I went through had some people burned up in it. Goodness. One that I know of. And, and uh, but stuff like that, and then I run into a bunch of aircraft crashes from that point on. Sounds like you've seen a little bit of everything, experienced a little bit of everything. I think, uh, Bill, somebody needs to make a movie. About your life, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Well, um, it's, yeah, what, which, and I know, like, we talked a little bit before the podcast started. It's not that you were seeking necessarily any of that to ever be put in those moments of greatness, you or don't, you don't. Um, it's, it's, but you found yourself there. The only, it's, it's my life has nothing would would be nothing if it wasn't for the people around me. Hmm. I mean, I didn't create this, or I didn't, I, and. I've just done what I thought I ought to do, and and uh, that's that's all I want to do. I don't want nothing else. Well, that's so much of life, and I think it's important for us to hear that as we even kind of come to a close on this podcast. I think it's important for me to hear that and others is so much of life is you know, we have a saying here that you can't boil the whole ocean, but you can do the next right thing. That's right. You can take the next right step. And it sounds like that's a lot of what you did, a lot of hard work, a lot of just trying to do the right thing that was in front of you. And then one step led to another step that led to another step that eventually led you to where, you know, you you are today and the legacy that you left behind. I believe you can do anything you want to do. Hmm. And I certainly hope so because I've done it. Yeah. And uh, and I I didn't, you know, I'm just a kid from Dixie. Yes. (laughs) And you've certainly accomplished a a lot in the military. Uh, more than most people could ever say. And um, I, I think I'll, I'll, we'll end here. We have every uh, everybody that comes on, we ask them kind of this list of questions at the end. Um, and and I'm, I'm curious to, to hear your responses. First question I guess I'd want to ask is you've traveled a lot of different places. Where's the favorite? Where's your favorite place you've ever been or ever lived? <clears throat> I, I, that would be hard to do. Hard to. I, I guess here, hmm. this is where I came back to. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. I, mm-hmm. I've been in places where I really liked, but I don't know whether I want to live there. I, I go to Florida 
I go to Idaho, I go to Cal- I don't go to California much anymore. I wouldn't live there because they gave me a place. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> right now, uh, I just I like the the mountains and I like Montana and I I, I like mm-hmm. all of them. What do you like about Paragold? They leave me alone. <laughs> it's quiet. It's safe. It's quiet. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I don't. You don't get the daily. I don't know. There's something I just. I didn't want to live at Dixie because the mosquitoes is too big. <laughs> but uh, no, we got them big enough here. Yeah, too. that's exactly but, right. But I just. Uh, I just fit here better right than on. most yeah. places. Well, I'm glad you're here. Six more questions. I got pretty quick. What is uh, either the last movie you watched or last book that you read? The last book I read was that thing I put together. <laughs> and That's a big one. <laughs> it's a big one. And it, uh, uh, I didn't like it. You didn't? Why no, not? I did not. I couldn't. I had a guide for that. And uh, every time that, that I started to write something, I, I wanted my friends and the people that affected whatever the situation was, I wanted to write more about them. And my wife stayed on me, and these, the people that, that published that said it was about me. Mm-hmm. And when you start writing about yourself, mm-hmm. to me it seems self-centered. Mm-hmm. So that part of it, I didn't. I didn't like. I, I just. I don't feel comfortable. Hmm. Well, I'm glad you told the stories about yourself because there's a lot of lessons in them. Oh. So, um, what is your favorite meal or your favorite food? Oh God, <laughs> I eat about anything I can get by with. Uh, if you could have anything, though, what I, what's your go-to? Uh, I, I don't know. I like a good steak once in a while. Same here. Same here. <laughs> what uh, What's on your nightstand right now? A Bible. Hmm. Excellent. Two more questions. Give us a snapshot of an ordinary moment in your life right now that brings you joy. What's just an ordinary moment? In the life of Ted Mabry, that's bringing that brings you joy. Kids, hmm. it, little kids. Hmm. My daughter, my wife. Hmm. Last thing, what is one thing that you're deeply grateful for right now? Oh God, that I've lived this long. Hmm. I, I've never expected this, hmm. and. I wish some of the others that I've seen go had this opportunity. Hmm. Well, that's a great place to end. Thank you so much for your service. Thanks for making time to be here. I'm glad that I made it here at least two minutes early. Okay. Because you were 30 minutes early. Yeah. (laughs) Because if you're not early, Bill, what are you? Late. You're late. late. (laughs) That's, That's right, Bill. He was paying attention, wasn't he? Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed it. Hope we get a chance to sit down and talk again. Anytime. And that was Ted Mabry. Bill, another incredible person living right here in Paragold. Someone that I didn't even know about, man. I've lived here my whole life. 
and I didn't even know about Ted until what was that a few weeks ago something mm-hmm. like that he yep. was in our building and I guess he was here for the uh, uh, the veterans program they had here and someone came up and was like hey you guys have got to get Ted Mabry on the podcast and like two other people came up like right after that like you gotta get Ted Mabry on the podcast so glad that we could make it happen um, hey for those of you who are still listening so glad that you tuned in today for Bill Jeffrey's official last episode for mm-hmm. now and um, you know if you haven't checked us out on our different social media platforms we would encourage you to do that we're on Instagram we're on Twitter Facebook, Facebook um, and we have an email list that you can subscribe to and if you haven't already done so go to iTunes give us a five star rating that helps people uh, find us more quickly and learn about more and just incredible amazing people that live right here in this city and so as always thanks for tuning in until next time